Obesity is on the rise. Four out of every 10 Americans. And along with it, diabetes, a disease that maims people before it kills them. These are absolutely preventable diseases, and yet they are a pandemic in our country and in our culture. And the reason they're doing so well is that portion control is doing so poorly and that sugar made from corn is so, so very cheap. Uh, so that if I were to go to a quick trip or a QT or a quick trip or a QT, if I were to go to any other place like a stroke, okay, whatever, if I were to go somewhere, I could get any drink, right, from a small to a bathtub that I could just <laughs> swim around in and it would only cost me a dollar. What an age we live in. It is amazing that we never seem to have enough. And we've been in a series called Seven Words That Will Change Your Life. And that is true of all of these words. It is literally true of this one. If you can learn to say the word enough, you will probably live longer. And you will probably enjoy your life more while you do. I've had enough. I don't need more. I've got enough. See, we think this is a cultural problem, but it's a really, really old spiritual problem. The history of the church, the wisdom of the fathers and mothers of the church, monks throughout the centuries, and the Bible have a lot to say about how our desire to fill this hole inside of us has a lot more to do with what we're missing in God than what we're missing in our bellies or in our wallets. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. We're going to be starting at verse 13. Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Good deal. It's on page 70 of my Bible, which helps you not at all. Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mm. Do you have enough? Do you have enough money? Do you have enough closet space? <clears throat> Never, right? Do you have enough? Is your car good enough? Is your watch nice enough? Are you tall enough? In shape enough? Do you get enough sex? Do you have enough children? Is your job important enough? Do you get enough free time? Do you have enough adventure? Beware of all kinds of greed, says Jesus. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
Because sometimes there's just never enough. And greed doesn't always look like greed. Greed doesn't always feel like greed. Uh, Dennis Ockholm, in his excellent book on the seven deadly sins, gives us this quote. Greed militates against all sorts of Christian virtues, gets in the way, such as patience, contentedness, self-denial, but almost always with a velvet glove rather than an iron fist. It speaks in tones sweet and sexy rather than dictatorial. It conquers by promises rather than by threats. Conquers by promises rather than by threats. Enough is a word that we tend to use in terms of promises. We tend to think of it as a future word. Someday, when things are a little bit different, someday, when I have a little bit more, then maybe. But the way Jesus tells this particular story leads us to wonder if maybe, maybe that day will never come. Maybe there's no such thing as enough. Jesus tells us this story in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. And in the chapter right before this, he's been kind of confronting some Pharisees, which is common for Jesus. And he says to them, look, you seem like good people, and you think you are good people, and you say you want to be good people, but you don't seem to realize that being good doesn't have as much to do with what you do as much as who you are. I mean, you can tithe all you want, but you are greedy. And then someone in the crowd says, whoa, Jesus, that's kind of mean. I mean, like, if, by that logic, what you are saying, I mean, you're, you're talking about me. You're talking about us. And Jesus says, yeah. And we get really uncomfortable. We're like, please change the subject. If someone could change, like, if we could just switch stories and turn the page. And all of a sudden that happens. Luke chapter 12, at the very beginning, Jesus starts talking about hell, which isn't really better. And so it would be great if someone could just change the subject again. And all of a sudden, in verse 13, a guy from the crowd goes, Hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I just want my fair share, he says. And Jesus says, who set me in charge of you? What do you think this is, a courtroom? And he's actually quoting the book of Exodus. Who set me to be judge and arbiter over you? Exodus chapter 2. There's this argument that happens between a couple of guys, and Moses tries to intervene and stop it. And they say, Moses, who put you in charge? Jesus is saying, look, even if you listen to what I had to say, you're not going to like it. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life, life is not about the abundance of possessions. And then he tells a little story, which is called a parable. And these stories are all over the Bible, but they're particularly, Jesus loves parables. Let's just say it like that. And the reason he loves parables is they're a little bit like riddles. You hear them and they stick in your brain like a splinter and they're just there. And you keep thinking, so am I the guy? Is this, is this about me? Is this not about me? What, where in my life is that true? What, what are barns for me? And you start, it just drives you crazy. Jesus loves stories like that. That is absolutely his goal, to inception you so that you just can't stop thinking about this particular story. A certain rich man, he says, a certain rich man had a good year. A certain rich man, his field produced. A certain, well, she got the promotion. 
man, we, we finally bought that house. He finally went on the trip. She, she finally got pregnant. Man, it, it finally happened a little bit more. A certain rich man finally got what he was looking for. Finally, we got what we were looking for. And he said, what shall I do? I have no place to store all of my crops. He finally gets what he wants, and he speaks the language of poverty in verse 17. Oh no, my diamond shoes are too tight. Right? This is, this is one of my favorite things. I don't know if you're familiar with the first world problems hashtag, right? This is, I love that. The, years and years ago, I came across it, and I think it was someone saying, oh, the line at Starbucks was too long, and they forgot my whipped cream. First world problems, right? They forgot the garlic aioli on my french fries. First world problems. It's just, it, like my iPhone is too slow. First world problems. This is not a real problem. And that has stuck with me. So much so that for some reason it becomes this way of mocking myself. When I'm looking in the fridge and think, ugh, we have so many leftovers. And I just want Chipotle. <laughs> and then in my head I'll think, that's not a real problem. Like you have, you have too much food and you want more of a different kind of food. This is Luke Parker, like that is not a real issue. Or I will look at my wife and I'll say, we just don't have enough closet space. And I'll think, yeah, we have too much stuff. We have too much stuff and nowhere to put it. Yeah, that's a real problem. Wow, that, if life is hard in the Parker house. And one of the things I was telling Jess this week that's been driving me crazy is it has occurred to me that this house used to have a family of five in it. So three teenage boys lived in this house and their parents, and they had a couple of dogs. They signed our concrete in the back. The dogs, by the way, signed our concrete in the back, and they lived in this part of the house. That whole back half of the house wasn't there. That's an addition. A family of five lived in this living room, that kitchen, that bathroom, one bathroom, two bedrooms, and I have no idea how they did it. It boggles my mind, like it's some kind of, where did they put their stuff? Where do they put it? Like, where do they put their kids? Like, did they stuff them in some kind of... I, I honestly have no idea how they managed to live happy, healthy lives in this tiny little house. Because the house we have, which is bigger, doesn't seem big enough for me and two tiny little boys. How is it possible that I don't have enough? Dennis Ockholm, again, in this book on greed, talks a little bit about how our culture has slowly and steadily changed in the United States. A huge gap, he says, between production and consumption was the result of the 19th century Industrial Revolution as we produced more cereal and cigarettes and other products that we couldn't consume. So instead of cutting production, manufacturers sought to increase consumption, to increase demand to meet supply. One ad executive said, my aim was to do educational and constructive work so as to waken an interest and create a demand for cereals where none existed. And slowly, what had been luxuries in the 1970s became essentials for us. For the most part, our society encourages greed. Although people don't call it greed, they call it financial success, economic security, the, the good life, having it all. This culture nurtures avarice, economic warfare, and the gospel of pleasure. To be sure, greed and hedonism in a capitalist economy produce more economic goods. But at what cost? 
Perhaps this helps explain why there are so few contemporary therapies for greed, because it is rarely perceived as undesirable. Rarely perceived as a problem. But it is a problem. The guy in the story has a problem. You and I have a problem, and I would say that it's getting worse and worse because we have targeted ads now. So if you go on Amazon and look at something, it's going to follow you around for the rest of your life, right? If you go to Target or Walmart, they watch your purchases, they buy your information from Facebook and Google, who are, of course, reading your emails and looking at your likes and dislikes, and they figure you out. And man, have they learned to pull at my heartstrings. Man, are they getting better and better at better at selling us things that we don't actually want until they tell us that we want them. The man in this story has a huge problem. It's just not the problem that he thinks. What should I do? I have nowhere to put all of my grain. I know. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. Then, then I will have enough room to store everything, all of my goods, all of my grain. Starts this crazy sounding inner monologue where he's thinking about all of the riches that are going to come his way if only he had bigger barns, if only he had the place to put them, gold and silver and more and more grain. We just kept pouring in. And you start to think, when he gets to the end of this little soliloquy, you're not talking to other people, you sound real crazy. I'm going to tear down my barns and build new barns, and then I'll say to my soul, Soul, you've got a lot. You're doing great. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do you think that's going to work? You think there's any chance that if he builds bigger barns, finally he'll relax? Finally that deep burning desire in him will go away? Now this man, if he builds those barns, there will just be more room to fill and suddenly he'll be concerned with something else. There will never, ever, ever, ever be enough for him. One of the extremely clever things about this story is that the word enough does not appear doesn't appear. And some Bible translations can't really handle that because it's hard in English to bring it across. The one I read said, he has ample goods. So I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. But ample implies sufficient, implies enough. Some translations just go with the word enough. But what it says in Greek is this, soul, you've got a lot. Relax. But he already has a lot. And he already had a lot before. He was a rich man before this even happened. And what does he mean, tear down his barns? How many barns does he have? Is there no more land available for one more? Why would you need to tear down buildings that already exist? Doesn't that seem crazy inefficient? Or is the goal not to take up any more farmland so that he can squeeze every last bit of it for as much profit as he possibly can? I have too much. Oh no. And you think the problem could easily be solved by giving some things away. In fact, that sounds less expensive than tearing down buildings and building new buildings. But this man has a very strange understanding of what it will take to get enough. About eight months ago, a dear friend of mine, he lives in Southern California in kind of a wealthy liberal town, and his family, his in-laws, live just outside of the town, like 20 or 30 minutes away in a really nice kind of country area. And their parents also live nearby in the same community. 
And so his grandfather-in-law, if that's a thing, and his grandmother-in-law lived pretty close by until about eight months ago, his grandfather-in-law died, which is a sad thing. And he was a good man, and they liked him, and he left his you know, wife a widow, and it was just a hard thing for the family to kind of figure out. And along the way, he was just sort of being helpful and figuring all this out, and that meant he was going to go with his father-in-law to her house and try and clean the place out. And so they showed up one day, and they were sort of sorting through old papers and random things that collect in a house over 60 or 70 years, when one of the other families came, and all of a sudden, his wife's five-year-old nephew comes running into the room and says, do you want to see an AK-47? This is a five-year-old. Now, maybe he's telling a story, and so they follow him, because that's going to at least make you curious, down into the basement, and it turns out that there is a fully loaded, fully automatic weapon in the basement where a five-year-old found it. And so, of course, they kick the five-year-old out of the room and begin searching the room for more weapons that are loaded casually in this basement. And as they go looking through the room, at first they don't really find very much. And at one point, my friend starts cleaning out the fireplace because there's sort of newspaper stacked up in there. And he knocks a brick loose. And behind the brick, he finds stocks for Intel and IBM. And he thinks, I never would have found these. No, does anyone know that these exist? And so they start realizing there are probably more things hidden in this room. And sure enough, in a coffee can, tucked away behind some old random documents and a dead plant, gold coins. And as they look under the couch, they found bars, more than one bar of platinum. They found $40,000 in precious metals. They found a variety of stocks worth far more than that. Some stocks, of course, which had become worthless in the course of time. Now, one of the weird things you don't know about this guy is that there were stories about him, some of which true, some of which had probably kind of ballooned over the years. But my, my friend says, I definitely know that he used to reuse floss. Like, it would be in his pocket, and we would be doing things, and then he would pull out floss, and you'd think, yeah. And then later in the day, he'd, he'd pull out floss, and you'd assume it was the same piece, but then you'd think, how long has he had that piece of floss? Like, how many days? It's been in there with his keys. And also, floss is something they give away at the dentist. It's not expensive. Like, it's free. People just give this stuff away. Like, why are you, why reuse the floss? And his wife told stories about how sometimes he would go to restaurants and take sugar packets or napkins or sometimes toilet paper. And it was this thing that they would laugh about. And once she said that, at, you know, there was a time that he used to hoard the toilet paper and only give me enough squares that I needed to go to the bathroom. And everyone laughed. And my friend said, and I laughed, but it seemed like, is this a joke or is that true? <laughs> that's, that's not funny. Like that's not. And as they began finding gold coins and bars of platinum and $40,000 of random metals, let alone stocks and other things, he began to really wonder, what kind of person is this? That he's stingy with these little things, but is hoarding all of this wealth. Who did he think would ever have this wealth? What if no one had searched the room? What if they'd lit a fire in the fireplace? Who is going to use these possessions now that this man is dead? Does he not realize? Did he not leave a note? No. Who will use these possessions when you're gone? That's God asking the question in the story. You've got a real problem. You started hoarding things. started constantly talking to yourself about things that don't seem to matter very much. Notice, by the way, that there is no conversation with another person in the story. 
It is entirely focused on himself. He's absolutely self-absorbed, absolutely consumed with the thing that he wants. And maybe the thing that we want isn't money, but it could easily be something else. Remember, he's focused on grain and barns. But for us, it could easily be a better phone or a nicer set of headphones or just, well, whatever it might be. And then I would have enough. And the thing that the man doesn't seem to notice is that everything he has in his life is not actually from him. God shows up in the end of the story and he says, you fool. Your life is going to be demanded of you. And the word there in Greek is one that's used for the, the calling in of a loan. I have loaned you your life and now I want it back. I have given you your wealth and where do you think it's going to go now? What, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think you'd be able to take this with you? Did you think this is really what life is all about? The beginning of the story says it's the field of the man that produced. Not the man himself. The field of the man gives forth all this grain. Who made the field? Who brings the grain? Who's the one who gives us breath in our lungs to begin with? Instead of saying thanks, which we talked about last week, instead of recognizing this ridiculous and amazing blessing that not only did a rich man get rich, but a rich man got richer, instead this man starts focusing entirely on himself. Notice the pronouns in the story. Oh no, what shall I do? I don't have a place to store my grain. I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build new ones. Life is all about him because life is all about stuff. All about the pursuit of having enough. The word greed in Greek is just sort of a clever slamming together of two words. <laughs> of having enough. It's the constant pursuit of having enough. That's what greed is. Pick your category. Pick your thing. It is the constant pursuit of having enough. And Jesus says, look, beware of all kinds of that. Because life, life is not about the abundance of possessions. And that's the kind of phrase that becomes a meme really quickly. People would love that, right? Christian or not Christian. Life is not about the abundance of possessions. Jesus, right? Go out and have an adventure or something like that. And people would badly misunderstand that he's talking about all kinds of greed, not simply money. And it might be helpful to understand the kind of life that he's talking about. So the word that Jesus used there for life is um, zoe, which is a Greek word for life. But he has other options. Right? There are at least two others he could have chosen the Bible sometimes uses for life. And I'm going to paraphrase a dictionary article by a scholar named Jim Edwards. By the way. Um, so other options. Bios is a kind of life. It's a kind of life that is quantifiable. How long did he live? Right? How much stuff did he have? How wealthy was he? What, where did he live? From when to when did he live? Life is quantifiable, a certain kind of life. That's not the kind of life Jesus is talking about. Suhe, another kind of life, a qualitative kind of life. What sort of person was she? How did she live her life? Was she happy or not? She accomplished things or not? Was she well-loved, well-liked or not? Qualitative life. Again, not the kind of life Jesus is talking about. Instead, he uses zoe. Zoe is a word that the Bible routinely uses for the kind of life that only God can give. For the kind of life that the Gospel of John will call eternal life. A life that goes on forever. The only life that's really worth having. The only life that's really worth getting. The only life that really is life in the true sense of the word. Bios, the kind of quantifiable life, that's the kind of life that lets you search endlessly to justify yourself. Search endlessly to find something that will make your life meaningful. 
And Jesus says that that's never going to work. That life, ultimately, is something that God gives. Which is what he means at the very end. When he says that's how it is for people who are rich in treasure, but not rich in God. To be rich in God means that we receive a gift from God. So the question is whether you've had enough. Have you had enough of trying to find the thing that will give your life meaning? Have you had enough trying to justify yourself, trying to be the kind of family your family wasn't, trying to be the kind of family your family was, trying to be the perfect kind of person, trying to prove something to yourself or to someone else? Have you had enough to drink? Have you had enough to drink? Have you had enough to eat? Have you had enough money? Have you had enough of trying to find the right place to live, of trying to find the right life that everyone will look at and say, man, that's the kind of life. Because the instant you say, I've had enough of this, that's when you turn to the God who gives it to you as a gift. The God who can truly satisfy with the kind of life that is really life. The kind of life that isn't found in the abundance of possessions, which we all know doesn't exist anyway. The kind of life that really constitutes a richness in God. A deep abiding richness that, well, that Jesus will say in the next passage in Luke, that moth and rust can't destroy. And so I say, don't worry about your life. Or about what you will eat or what you drink. God takes care of birds and flowers. Don't you think God can take care of you? As you keep reading in the Gospel of Luke, you'll get a better sense of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about a healthy way of looking at the world around us and a healthy way of looking at life, the only life that really is life, the kind of life that can be enough for you and me. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that in you we find all that we need, in fact, more than we need. And yet, God, we live in a world that is constantly telling us through every possible device and every possible medium, that we are not enough, that we do not have enough. We pray, God, that we would find our identity in you, that we would find our worth in you, that we would stop tearing down barns and building new ones, that we would become the kind of people who realize you've given us everything we have, that we'd know that we're enough. In the name of Jesus, amen.